we've got a million chemotherapies available. And I think it's just looking at your patient, the toxicities that they have from their prior lines of therapy, their preference, the type of life they live, the job they have, what side effects they absolutely find unacceptable, what side effects they would pick if they had to pick one. No one wants to pick any. And you make the best choice for your patient. Welcome to the RMBC Life Podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here, since no one should face MBC alone. Hi, friends. Welcome to our post-ASCO-analysis series entitled, When the Dust Settles. Today, in our second episode of the series, we're continuing with our discussion of metastatic, hormone-receptor-positive breast cancer. I'm Victoria Goldberg, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Fitzek, and the friends of this podcast, three prominent clinicians and thought leaders in the field of breast cancer. Dr. Stephanie Graff, Dr. Sarah Hurwitz, and Dr. Kevin Kalinske. We have seen a lot of interesting data come out of 2022 ASCO in the metastatic hormone receptor positive setting and are very eager to discuss survival data from Paloma 2 and Monarch 3, the emergence of oral certs from the Emerald study, and the data from a small but very interesting phase 2 maintained trial. In the next hour, you will get a lot of information, and some of it might be somewhat complex. So in order to make it a little less overwhelming, here is a list of questions we will attempt to answer in this episode. 1. What does the new survival data from Paloma 2 and Monarch 3 trials mean for the clinicians in how they view the three CDK4-6 inhibitors? and the impact for patients in how the treatments are selected for them. Two, we have a definitive answer to what is to be used in the first-line setting. It's one of the three FDA-approved CDK4-6 inhibitors in combination with hormonal therapy. But what about the second-line setting? Should CDK4-6 inhibition continue after the disease progression? Will the data from the maintained trial Help us answer this question. Three, what are the strategies for a patient who progresses after CDK4-6 inhibitor? At what point should a patient be tested for acquiring ESR1 or PI3 kinase mutation? What is the role of chemotherapies in the newly approved antibody drug conjugate? And finally, four, CERDs or selective estrogen receptor degraders and especially oral CERT, are exciting new CERT. There has been so much hope placed in these agents. We've been waiting for better endocrine therapies and the opportunity to have an oral agent instead of intermuscular or 
of Fazladex for a long time. And so we have been eagerly awaiting data from the Emerald trial, which had compared the oral age analysis trend with endocrine therapy of physician's choice. Based on the results from this and other trial, what does the future look like for this class of drug? Dr. Kevin Kalinsky is our first-time guest, and as you know by now, I always begin my interview with the same question. It's your turn to introduce yourself to us and answer the question that I always ask. It's my favorite question, and I always ask somebody who's come to us for the first time, because we really want to know why you decided to become an oncologist and specifically breast oncologist. The reason I became an oncologist is actually multifold. And this is probably a story that is a through line through multiple practitioners who treat patients. My grandfather died from small cell lung cancer. When I was young, we went to MD Anderson for a second opinion. I remember that at that age. And then I had another young person who had lymphoma. I saw the struggles she was going through. And then as hackneyed as it sounds, when I was in third grade, I watched Terms of Endearment. Um, <laughs> and it just had a enormous impact on me, like as a kid. And then when I was in training, I had great mentorship in breast. And the relationship that my mentor had with his patients was something that was unique and special. But it was never revealed in terms of endearment that she had breast cancer, was it? It was some cancer, but they didn't specify. She either had breast or gyne. I want to say she had breast cancer. I remember that movie so incredibly well. All right. Thank you. And I will recommend our listeners to watch Terms of Endearment if they have a chance. In the next section, our guests will answer the first question on our list. What does the new survival data from Paloma 2 and Monarch 3 trial mean for the clinicians? And how they view CDK4-6 inhibitors and the impact for patients in how the treatments are selected for them. This is by far the most important question for a majority of MBC patients. We already know that the first-line treatment with any type of hormonal therapy plus CDK4-6 inhibitor is standard for metastatic hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. Clinicians may choose among palbocyclib eye brands, ribocyclib, kiscali, and abemocyclib for zinc. The question is, which is their preferred first option? We turn to our guests to answer this question, as our first-time guest, Dr. Kalinsky, gets to go first with his answer. I will ask you about Paloma. In our support groups, this might be one of the most, at least it was right after ASCO, one of the most popular questions. People were saying, okay, so palbocyclib, no survival benefit. What do we do now? Do we switch? Do we drop palbo and go to ribo? I think that this was a really important update that we were all awaiting. and. I will give the caveat that the population of patients 
who were in Paloma 2 is a little bit different than some of the other frontline studies. And this is one of the challenges of cross-trial comparisons because there was a higher percentage of patients who have endocrine-resistant disease, who had progression sooner from their adjuvant hormonal therapy. And I will also say that if that was alone in a box, that's a different circumstance than when you have multiple studies with the other CDK4-6 inhibitors that are showing an improvement in overall survival. So I've heard from other colleagues as well that for patients who've been on pabocyclib and tolerating it, et cetera, that we've not been switching. But for our new starts, I will say in my practice, because one of my colleagues phrased it in a way that has just always resonated with me. She said, well, what would you tell your mom to do? And I think that in that context, I tend to start with a CDK4-6 inhibitor that has shown an improvement in survival. I eat the other caveat being sometimes that we need to use pavocyclic, but outside of those outlier circumstances, I have shifted my practice. Next up is Dr. Sarah Hurwitz. The phase three Paloma 2 study conducted by Dr. Richard Finn and his colleagues of the David Geffen School of Medicine at the USCLA evaluated the use of bulbocyclic plus letrozole in patients with estrogen receptor ER positive HER2 negative breast cancer. During the 2022 ASCO annual meeting, these investigators presented their updated overall survival results. As soon as I got back from Chicago, I scheduled a phone interview with Dr. Hurwitz. I really wanted to get her take on the results of the trial. Dr. Hurwitz was suffering from a bad, bad cold at the time of the call, but refused to cancel and went on with the interview. And I'm very grateful to her for doing it. I want to ask you, the results of the Paloma trial were a little disappointing in the overall survival. I figured I'd go to the source. So your colleague, Dr. Richardson, presented it. So I want to ask you, what was that all about? Why isn't there any significant improvement on the overall survival? Well, there's a lot of theories as to why the two other drugs, ribocyclib and abemocyclib, demonstrated significant overall survival benefits in multiple trials. Ribocyclib's been associated with overall survival benefits in three trials now. Abemocyclib demonstrated overall survival benefit in the Monarch 2 study, and they're getting very close to showing survival benefit in Monarch 3. That was presented at ESMO a few months ago. A lot of people are saying, well, it's the study design that they enrolled patients who weren't likely to show benefit. They also lost a lot of patients in follow-up. So there's a lot of missing data for patients who didn't have survival. But, you know, I'm beginning to wonder whether or not it has to do with the drug itself. It's a different drug. It's very well tolerated, probably the best tolerated of all three CDK4-6 inhibitors. But it's not as potent. It doesn't spend as much time inhibiting the cyclin-dependent kinases as the other drugs do. And, you know, it may just not be the best drug of the three. And if you look at the early stage setting, 
palbociclib was tested in patients with non-metastatic breast cancer in two clinical trials and failed to demonstrate any benefit by adding the palbo to endocrine therapy in early stage disease. On the other hand, abemocyclib did show benefit. So we're getting a number of trials now, Paloma 2, Paloma 3, with no significant survival benefit, and Pallas and Penelope B showing no significant benefit at all with palbo in the early stage setting. And this is beginning to distinguish palbociclib. That said, a lot of community oncologists are very comfortable using palbociclib, and they feel that the objective response rates and progression-free survival with the drug is just as good as with the others. And so they're still prescribing it. It was the first one out. They're most comfortable with it. I don't think that patients who are currently on palbociclib and are deriving benefit from it should switch off of it. These studies do not address that. The studies are more for informing how we go about prescribing things from now on based on large trials, but it doesn't give us information for a particular patient. If a particular patient's been on it a long time and is benefiting from it, I wouldn't switch off of it. So that's my take so far on the data. Even though Dr. Graf is tired of talking about Paloma 2, I forced her to weigh in. I'm glad of that. Her opinion is always invaluable. I almost hate talking about Paloma 2 at this point. (laughs) Well, let's Um, talk about it anyway. Yeah. So Paloma 2, okay, here are my talking points for Paloma 2. One, Paloma 2 failed to show an overall survival advantage of adding palbociclib to letrozole for metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. The primary endpoint of the study was median progression-free survival. The co-endpoint was overall survival. Overall survival was not met. I consider this a negative study. Two, if you are currently living with metastatic breast cancer and have been on palbociclib for more than a minute, keep taking it. Okay? Do not freak out. It's okay. Three, when you look at palbociclib, ribociclib, and abemociclib, across trials, they all had very similar median progression-free survivals, which tells us that they're all active drugs in hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer. I am so thankful for palbociclib because we had it first. We had it for years before we had the others. It has maybe a little bit better, maybe a little bit different side effect profile than the others. For lots of patients, the out-of-pocket cost is favorable for palbociclib compared to the others. And if for no other reason than that it was the trailblazing compound, that is really important and deserves to be celebrated. That deserves a standing ovation right? But 
I can't in the same breath say that they all showed similar median progression-free survivals. So they're all the same. And they didn't all show overall survival. So it's okay. Like you can't cross trial compare to say they're the same and then not cross trial compare to say that they're different. You can't look at the median progression-free survival being the same and say they're all the same and then look at the side effects and say they're all different. So they're all different. We can't do that. That's not how science works. And we know that abemaciclib causes diarrhea and ribociclib prolongs the QT interval. We know that abemaciclib improves overall survival, adjuvant and metastatic. Ribociclib is positive in the metastatic setting and positive in the adjuvant setting. Yes. Halbo is negative in the adjuvant setting and negative in the metastatic setting and doesn't affect QT interval or diarrhea to the degree that the other two drugs do. We have to accept that there's a chance that these drugs just interact with their targets differently. I don't know what number I'm on. I think I'm on number four on my list. <laughs> but back to the people who are currently taking it today, there's a lot different about these trials, okay? There's differences in compliance with the medicine. There's differences in dose modification. There's differences in the type of patients, like how many lines of prior therapy, how recently they had had endocrine therapy, what time frame in pandemic life and CDK4-6 inhibitor life, fulvestrant versus aromatase inhibitor versus tamoxifen. There are so many differences that if you are on a medicine and it is controlling your cancer and it is working for you and you are tolerating it, do not stop it because all you're going to do is build resistance to the medicine you stopped. And we know from the maintained trial, which I'm sure you're getting ready to talk about, yes. that if you're on palbociclib now and it's working for you and someday you progress, you'll just take one of the other ones later and it's going to be okay. Okay? Okay. My Six, I think is the number we've decided that I'm on. Final point is for me, at the end of the day, when I sit down in a clinic to talk about this for patients, most patients, Victoria, do not have your health literacy, patient advocacy background, interview thought leaders all day. They can't jump around the nuance of these three drugs and these, what are we at, 18 trials, I would have to count, that got us to here, they're going to look at me and say, Doc, which one would you take? Mm -hmm. Which one would you give your sister? Which one would you give your mother? And I can't explain why Paloma 2 being negative isn't a huge deal because it matters. And to try to nuance that for 45 minutes one-on-one -on -one with a patient isn't right for the patient and isn't right for me sleeping at night. Yeah. So <laughs> it's going to change my prescribing habits. I previously used a lot of palba cyclib, honestly, transparently, because of insurance red tape. A lot of the times palba was the simplest one to get. And now I'm not. But you will still look at the profile of a patient and maybe for somebody older and more fragile, you would think of doing palbo as the first line? So 
for a patient that has a baseline prolonged QT interval, for a patient who had terrible diarrhea with their adjuvant chemotherapy and says never again, for a patient who's on three or four or seven medicines for depression, anxiety, bipolar, <laughs> et cetera, who I can't add ribociclib because of the drug-drug interactions. I mean, these are real things that happen Absolutely. in oncology clinic, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have palvo in my pocket for a patient I start on a bemociclib and who poops for two weeks straight and comes in and says, we are not talking about dose reduction. We're talking about a new medicine for me, Dr. Graf. I will say, okay. Paloma 2 overall survival results were unfortunately disappointing. But there are many people who have been on their first line of treatment, specifically palbocycle, for many years, far more than reported media overall survival. We call these people outliers, super responders, unicorns, but in fact, They're not that rare. There are about 10% of those who participated in the Paloma 2 trial who are still on palbocyclob in their first line. So the question of whether it would ever be possible to discontinue the treatment or at least reduce the treatment dose is no longer hypothetical. And I pose this question to Dr. Hurwitz and Dr. Kalinsky. What about these super responders on PALBO or other CDK4-6 inhibitors? Is there any thought about discontinuing their treatments at some point and just observing them? Or for those who are still on the highest dose, is there any thought about reducing the treatment? No, because the vast majority of patients do experience disease progression at some point. I have a patient who's been on Palbo for over 12 years. She was on the TRIO-18 study, so the first trial that mm-hmm. evaluated this combination. But we don't have evidence that she's cured or that a patient's cured by this. And the majority of patients aren't having complete responses. You can still see some level of evidence of the disease. So until we have better evidence suggesting that you can distinguish those patients who will have a long-term durable remission, I think you have to continue them on therapy unless they are not tolerating it for some reason. Now, in HER2-positive disease, there are patients who have complete responses. You can't see any cancer whatsoever on imaging. There was a patient on Dr. Slayman's trial back in the 90s of trastuzumab, one of the earliest trials, who did probably achieve a cure with HER2-positive disease, but the pace of disease and the biology of the disease is very different when the tumor is HER2-positive. With ER-positive disease, it can become indolent and be quiet or dormant for many years before coming back, so stopping therapy early may actually impair a patient's long-term survival. We just don't know. So if a patient isn't tolerating things well, I would be reluctant to just take them off of therapy. And what about the dose reduction? Would you consider reducing the dose? Not unless a patient isn't tolerating it well. If there are side effects, one should dose reduce, but we didn't dose reduce on the clinical trials 
just for the sake of dose reduction. I think you dose reduce based on tolerability and toxicity, but if a patient's doing really well on a dose, there's no need to reduce the dose. Related to that, as I said, I run two support groups with a lot of people. And I have to tell you that almost everyone in my support group is on a reduced dose of one of these three drugs. So my question to you is, when you start a patient on the first-line treatment, do you always start at the highest dose? Yes, I always start at the highest dose in the frontline setting. That's the way the clinical trials were conducted, and the way the clinical trials were conducted led to improved survival. Some patients may require dose reduction due to tolerability, and their benefit from the drug is not impaired by dose reducing for toxicity. I don't preemptively start at a lower dose. There's no evidence to support that that is the optimal management for patients. I have friends, and they all asking, so, okay, I've been on Palbo for 10 years. Can I stop? Is there a time when I can stop? Or do I reduce if I'm on 125 to 75? That's supposed to be just as efficacious. It's a good question. It is a good question. I don't know that we totally know the answer. I think that, you know, the conversation that I had made of, okay, if it's not broken, should we try to fix it? That's part of the conversation. I think it really is a question of what are the side effects? Is it impacting quality of life? That's part of the considerations, an important consideration. I also think the issue that we're highlighting with all these circumstances, with continuing on HP, continuing on fulvestrant for a long time, continuing on a CDK4-6 inhibitor, the NCI had an initiative looking at those patients who were exceptional responders to drugs. And like same could be true with pembrolizumab, right? Like that subset of patients with triple negative breast cancer, that's pdl one positive, who have really long-term responses. The issue is that we just don't know enough to predict who those people are. And then once that happens, what to do with them, (laughs) right? And I mean, it's a quandary. And this is also where it's really an individualized conversation. So to sum up, ribocyclin is the preferred option for the newly diagnosed hormone-positive MBC patients. Palbocyclob is still up there with much more experience in the real world. Lastly, we have preliminary data from ESMO on abemocyclob. Abemocyclob was the third, the most potent drug of the three. We have data from Monarch 2 and Monarch 3 trial that it has impressive efficacy in visceral metastasis in patients who relapse very early after the adjuvant treatment and who have high-grade tumors or low PR expression. We don't have final analysis on overall survival, but it does look promising. In a few months, we should have the final result. For the patients who are currently on palbocycle, our guests do not recommend the change and insist on staying the course. Palbocyclib is still a viable option. CERDs and many other new compounds are being tested in combination with palbocyclib because of its excellent toxicity profile. Next up is Kevin Kalinsky and the Maintain Trial. This episode, as well as the first part of our two-episode series, 
are targeting the presentations from this summer's ASCO annual meeting that were not Destiny Breast 04. The results of the maintained trial are at the top of the list. It was a relatively small randomized phase 2 investigator-initiated trial that attempted to answer a very important question. And here is Kate to start the ball rolling. The maintained trial demonstrated statistically significant improvements in the progression-free survival in favoring the combination of fulvestrin and ribocyclib. I was just wondering, what inspired you to look at changing up the endocrine therapy and then using the CDK again? What was your question the trial was actually trying to answer? This trial was designed several years ago, and we have known in patients with HER2-positive breast cancer that there is a benefit for continuing some form of HER2-targeted therapy at different stages of treatment in patients who've had breast cancer that has spread. And the CDK4-6 inhibitors are a group of medicines that have really shown improvement in patients, both in progression-free survival, right, how long it takes for the cancer to grow, and then overall survival as well. And not that we think that CDK4-6 inhibition is the same as HER2 inhibition, but we wanted to ask the question, what's really driving the resistance that we see when patients take endocrine therapy and a CDK4-6 inhibitor? And is it really being driven by resistance to that endocrine therapy, or is it driven by something else? Is it real resistance to the CDK4-6 inhibition? So the question was, is there a role for continuing the CDK4-6 inhibitor with the hypothesis being that maybe the tumor is just really resistant to the endocrine therapy and there's benefit for continuation of CDK4-6 inhibition? And I think that this question has been in the field where if you look in the lab and you look at these real-world data, there had been this suggestion that there was a benefit for continuing some form of CDK4-6 inhibitor. We had 120 participants who had tumors that had progressed on primarily an aromatase inhibitor and primarily palbocyclin, and they were randomized to switching their endocrine therapy, which was the majority of cases, as you had mentioned, was fulvestrant with ribocyclib or fulvestrant with placebo. And so this was a randomized placebo-controlled trial. And we saw that there was a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival with a hazard ratio, meaning when we're looking at that difference between those two arms, of about 0.57, which is very similar to what the data look like in patients who are CDK4-6 inhibitor naive. You had mentioned that it was a controlled placebo study. So we're wondering how you could prevent patients and clinicians from knowing who was on the control arm receiving the placebo, given that the side effect of the CDK4-6 is neutropenia. It was blinded. And we only unblinded a patient or two, but it was in patients who had significant side effects where the clinician then said, oh, I really need to know if the patient was getting ribocyclib or not. 
And this was one of our concerns when we designed the study. We see with ribocyclib a real decrease in the white cells. And so our patients who are enrolled to the study going to be willing to stay on the fulvestrant alone arm if they're not seeing that there's a decrease in their white cells. And so when we designed the study, we actually had designed it with a expected dropout where we thought, okay, a certain number of patients are going to drop out of the study. Though we actually found that patients continued on the treatment and were adherent to the treatment, and we didn't see much in the way of dropout. You didn't have a hard time accruing patients. We did. There were some patients who were not eligible for the study for one reason or another, because in the study, we allowed patients to have cancer that had only spread to the bone or if cancer had spread to other parts of the body, it didn't matter if it was measurable or not measurable on the scans, which oftentimes can limit accrual to the studies. But this particular study, some of the issues were that maybe the blood counts were just too low and a patient couldn't go on, or we did an EKG and maybe it wasn't to the certain level. It was those sort of criteria that excluded a few patients. I was wondering if you did a subgroup analysis. We looked at patients who had tumors that progressed on the CDK4-6 inhibitor, and we looked at endocrine resistance in terms of how long they were on their prior endocrine therapy and CDK4-6 inhibitor. We looked at both six months and 12 months, where we're seeing that patients had tumors that progressed that was shorter than what we see with the median. And so the exact number, don't quote me on this, was about a third or so. But the unique thing that we saw, the patients who had, quote unquote, early progression, had the ratio of benefit higher than what we saw for those who had been on for longer than 12 months. When we had some back and forth in the room, when we were presenting the data at ASCO, this was one of the things that somebody had asked. And I don't have a great explanation for why that is, but one of the hypotheses could be, are all the CDK4-6 inhibitors the same? And if ribocyclib really is different than palbocyclib. Could there be something about some innate resistance to palbocyclib that ribocyclib is overcoming, though we don't know that for sure, and that's just a hypothesis? Yeah, I was going to ask you exactly that question, that when you designed your trial, you didn't really differentiate. And so most people were originally on palbo, and you tested half of them with ribo. And so, of course, the question is, are you testing that ribocyclib is a better drug than palbo or the actual transition from one CDK to another? I think that is really the next question of this study. Because with any study, there are things that we learn and then there are things that we don't know. And it was only 14 patients of the 120 who had prior ribocyclib and essentially went from ribo to randomization. When we designed the study, and I didn't go into this in the presentation, but it's included in the paper that I'm hoping will come out soon, we tried to actually enrich for patients who had prior ribocyclib, but we just didn't achieve the numbers that we had hoped Mm -hmm. for. When we looked at the forest plot, so when we looked at the patients who had prior PABO, or prior ribo, the level of benefit was similar, 
but the ribo group is just so underrepresented. I do think at San Antonio this year, we will see the results of the PACE study, which is a study that's being run out of the Farber by Erica Mayer, which is looking at the question of patients who have tumors that have progressed on PAVO and endocrine therapy, randomizing them to fulvestrin alone, fulvestrin plus PAVO, or fulvestrin plus PAVO plus immunotherapy. And if we don't see a benefit of that PAVO to PAVO, that may in some sort of way help answer that question, albeit with a different trial. It's so funny that you brought up the PACE trial because we were talking about it before and we were wondering whether we should bring it up and we decided not to. So thank you for mentioning it. And both Kate and I are going to be in San Antonio. So we're looking forward to hearing that being reported out. It's a very important study that will help answer some additional questions. And then, of course, there's also the question about abemacyclib and what's that benefit after prior treatment. And there's an ongoing large phase three trial called the post-monarch study that will answer that question. And in that study, they are looking at patients who've had a tumor that's progressed either on their CDK4-6 inhibitor in the adjuvant setting. So there will be some abema to abema patients or patients who received any CDK4-6 inhibitor at the time that their tumor progressed in the frontline metastatic setting, and then would go on to be randomized. And that study is looking at full vestrant with or without a bemocyclin. Well, that's good to know. Thank you. But I wanted to ask you something else. I think at your presentation, you mentioned a smaller biomarker analysis that showed some interesting results on the maintained trial, and I'm talking about the ESR1 mutations. So could you just tell us a little bit in your own words what those findings were? Sure. So we know that about a third of patients who have tumors that have progressed on an aromatase inhibitor can develop ESR1 mutations, right? It's a mutation that develops that explains resistance to that group of medicines. And so we did the subset analysis within Maintain for the patients on full vestrant, because this is not generally a resistance mechanism to that class of medicines. And we looked at the rate of ESRO mutations, which was about a third, it was like a third to 40% of patients. And interestingly, we saw that the benefit seemed to be limited to those who did not have an ESR1 mutation. And when I got the results of that, we double-checked this because I was confused by it, honestly, and thought, oh, well, I'm just going to have a hard time explaining. And one of the things we talked about in the presentation was that in that population of those who had ESR1 mutations, a good number of them also happened to have alterations that may offer resistance to CDK4-6 inhibitors, like FGFR amplifications or cyclin D1 amplifications. And so our hypothesis is, well, maybe we just by chance happen to have, for those patients in the ESR1 mutant cohort, an enrichment of resistance to CDK4-6 inhibitors. And that was hypothesis-generating I do think it's going to be important to see what the PACE study shows. I think it's going to be important to see what post-monarch shows because the sample size is really small 
The other thing that I will say that I didn't present at ASCO were, were the patients with PIK3CA mutations. And we didn't actually see, and this will be in the paper, the patients who had PIK3CA mutations didn't benefit from the continuation of ribocyclin. And so if I had a patient who has a PIK3CA mutant breast cancer, whose tumor had progressed on a prior CDK4-6 inhibitor, I wouldn't use ribocyclin. I would use something like alpolisib, i.e. PIK-ray in that patient, because that's a more targeted treatment. Wow. I hope we can use it in our podcast before your paper comes out. Yeah, you are welcome to use that. Actually, it was one of the Thank you. prepared questions that I was hoping for, but that didn't come up in the question and answer session. Okay, good. I'm glad we're going to help. <laughs> yeah. I would really love to talk about the trials you had mentioned, and we were talking about PACE trials before this interview. And we noticed the arm with the monotherapy. And we wonder, or we have these three different arms, and then you have monotherapy when if we're not on a trial, we would be getting the next line of treatment, which is typically a combination. And we're questioning why do you have that monotherapy in there? Because there are so many trials, obviously, prior to all these trials that actually had patients with just monotherapy, because that's all we had available. I think that when we designed Maintain, we didn't know what the median progression-free survival was going to be with single-agent whole vestrant. And even when we designed a study, I remember sitting down with the statistician and we felt like I was guessing because we knew that the biology was different, but we didn't have an estimate of median PFS, of median progression-free survival. And I, I do appreciate you raising this question because that was one of the things that I really tried to highlight in the conclusions from Maintain. Because we've seen this with the Emerald study, which looked at the oral SERD elicestrant. We saw this at ASCO with the Veronica study, which was essentially fulvestrant with or without a different targeted agent. And the median progression-free survival in all of those studies is about two to three months. So in my practice, I don't really feel comfortable giving single-agent fulvestrant. We've seen that it doesn't give as durable benefit as we would like for it to. And I don't know how penetrant that has been within the community, meaning I see patients who come in for second opinions who are on full Vestrand alone after CDK4-6 inhibition. But I will tell you in my practice, it does concern me just because we're really not seeing the degree of benefit as we would like with single agent hormonal therapy. It is time to turn our attention to the results of the Emerald trial and a question about the outlook for this class of drugs. That study was a positive study, but most ASCO participants felt that the benefit was fairly modest. For the intent-to-treat population, there was only an improvement of approximately one month, but the ESR1 mutant patients were seeing larger benefits. This agent is currently under the FDA review, so we'll see if it leads to an approval soon. It would be nice to have an oral agent. Here's Kate with a question for Dr. Kalinsky. So the Emerald trials, what we're hearing is there's such positive results looking at this oral CERD. We're wondering how it compares to fulvestrin. 
we saw data from Aditya Bardia at San Antonio looking at oral CERD, elicestrant, versus physician choice endocrine therapy. And this was statistically significant outcome. The benefit really seemed to be in those patients with ESR1 mutations. This is not a drug that's available to patients yet. I think it's going to the FDA within the next couple of months. And then we're hoping sometime maybe early next year, this could be something that is in our clinic. The point that I was making about single agent endocrine therapy, I think holds true with this too, in that that improvement was about a month or so when we compare this to agents, including fulvestrant. And I certainly have patients in my practice who really don't like the fulvestrant. To have an oral agent that's effective, we'd like for us to have these available. So it's nice to have additional drugs in our armamentarium. But I'll also say the point still stands about single agent endocrine therapy. And if you have a patient who's had a tumor that progresses on a CDK4-6 inhibitor, is that really what's best for the patient is to give single agent elicestrant or as opposed to giving elicestrant maybe in combination with a targeted therapy? And hopefully we'll see the safety of doing that, like safety with uh, verlimus or safety with alpalisib so that we can be able to combine with a CERD just given what we see with single agent activity. Based on our own, well, Kate has a firsthand experience, <laughs> but I can tell you based on our support group experience, this is the number one conversational topic that we have in our support groups. People complaining about Fazlodex shots and asking how to make it better and what things to do to alleviate the pain. So I think an oral surge is a must for so many people. Yeah, I've been on this five years. It's hard. It's really hard to be on. And it's just that injection part. Once it's in, it's like the after effects of the injection, the pain that you're dealing with. And it's very hard to be on for such a long time. And we're wondering if they are comparable. Can we switch from one to the other? But now what I think I'm hearing you is we still need to know the safety because we're on these combinations with it. And we would love to ditch the fulvestrin and put this elicestrin in. I I can't wait for that day. Yeah. I think the other question we've seen, including at ESMO, some randomized data with two oral CERDs that didn't give this sort of benefit that we would like. Elicestrin is the only randomized trial that we've seen with an improvement in outcome. And clearly, not all the oral surds are the same. They have different side effects, things like this. I also think the question that I have is if we have several surds that come to market, which would be great, how are we going to choose between them? Are we going to choose based upon the side effect profile, the efficacy? And I think the other question is, the drugs are different, even in terms of how they impact patients who don't have an ESR1 mutation, or they maybe will come up with the sort of circumstance where if you have this specific ESR1 mutation, you get this drug as opposed to this drug. I wonder if we can get to that point where things really are targeted in that sort of capacity, but we're definitely not there yet. So it's going to be a while. (laughs) No, no, it's going to be the beginning of next year, right? (laughs) Yes, Yes. the elastestrant, that's right. I think we're hoping that that will come early next year. Is that for patients that are on 
sylvestrin and would like to switch to something that may be a little more tolerable? Or is that with progression and you have that ESR1 mutation? Yeah, I think that that's really an individualized conversation. I think that for some patients, it will be, let's do this at the time that the tumor is progressing. And then for some patients, if they just can't tolerate the fulvestrant, it's just too difficult, then the idea of switching. That's why I think it will come down to that sort of one-on-one discussion. Okay. So we really just don't know the comparison yet either though, is one better than the other? Because obviously if you're on the fulvestrant and it's working, it's like that dilemma where you're trying to balance and say, well, this combination is working for me. Do I really want to try something that may or may not work as well? Do we know that? We know from the Emerald study for new starts that comparing fulvestrant to the oral CERD, that the oral CERD was better. But for patients like yourself who've been on fulvestrant for a long time, that's a different sort of conversation and that we don't have data from. And that's a data-free zone where it's exactly as you said, it's the, do we want to rock the boat or not? In the next and our last section of this episode, our guests will try to answer another important question from our list of questions. What are the strategies for a patient who progresses after a CDK4-6 inhibitor? At what point should a patient be tested for acquiring ESR1 or PI3 kinase mutation? What is the role of chemotherapies and the newly approved antibody drug conjugates? We always bring up sequencing. Is this something that should be practiced? Should we be really looking hard at this and questioning this as a patient? Even if it's just a year or six months, we're always looking to stay because we always want more, more drugs in that toolbox that we can pull from. And if this could be a possibility. I do think that would be ideal for us to know in a post CDK4-6 inhibitor world, what's the best sequencing that we should be offering our patients? Also understanding that we have new anti-estrogen therapies that are coming down the pike, like the oral selective estrogen receptor downregulate. There are a number of questions that remain of what's the best sequence of targeted drugs? What's the best sequence of the oral agents that are coming down the pike? I do think it's important for us to move beyond just thinking, well, how are we going to get a drug approved? Which is, of course, important so that we can improve patients' lives and outcomes right now with the targeted agents. Just like as a, for instance, if there's a patient that has a tumor that progresses on an aromatase inhibitor and a CDK4-6 inhibitor, should we be utilizing ribo? Should we be utilizing everolimus? And I'm not so sure that we know the answer to that right now. That's critical. But also for us to be thinking about Well, once we get that, like, how is it going to fit into the bigger picture? The data to support switching among the CDK4-6 inhibitors at the time of progression is not strong yet. And if you look at laboratory studies, disease that has become resistant to a CDK4-6 inhibitor doesn't respond to another CDK4-6 inhibitor And in fact, the most common pathway that's altered when disease becomes resistant to CDK4-6 inhibitors 
is a TI3 kinase pathway. The trial did show an interesting improvement in progression-free survival by swapping the CDK4-6 inhibitor, but also the endocrine therapy. It only looked at, really, palbo switching to ribo. Almost no one went from ribo to ribo or to abemaribo. I think it's an interesting phase two proof of concept study, but I do not do it outside of a clinical trial setting. There are ongoing studies, for example, post-Monarch that's looking at this strategy in a randomized setting, and there's other studies addressing this as well. So I think we're going to have more data, but I only do that in the context of a clinical trial at this point. I see. So in the clinic, when your patient progresses on the CDK4-6 inhibitor, whichever one it is, you drop it and you go to the second line, and I'm assuming that would be Fazlodex? Generally, we use endocrine therapy like Fazlodex plus a PI3 kinase inhibitor such as Alpelisib. If Alpelisib is not indicated because the tumor is PIK3CA negative, then the mm-hmm. alternative is Everolimus. So let me ask you then, the subsequent lines of treatment, once there is clear sign of some endocrine resistance, where would you put in HER2 in the treatment lineup? Would it go right after, or you will still start with the capecitabine or some other chemotherapy as the first non-endocrine treatment? Yeah, the patients should have at least one line of chemo before going on to trastuzumab directs to CAN. That's the way the study was designed. And capecitabine is really, really well tolerated by patients in general. You can alter the dose to make it very tolerable, and patients can have long periods of disease control with this drug, whereas trastuzumab deruxtecan causes significant hair thinning, very significant nausea and even vomiting, low white counts, diarrhea. So it's a more toxic agent, although the efficacy was quite promising in the Destiny Breast 04 trial, you have to keep in mind the side effect profile and the fact that the study was conducted in patients who had all received at least one line of chemo in the metastatic setting. So that's where it should be used at this point. So I'm going to ask you a very unfair question for because of everything you just said, but I will ask it anyway. So how do we sequence all of these new drugs that are in our toolbox now? For me, first-line therapy is always a CDK4-6 inhibitor. 90% of the time I'm doing that with an AI, not full vestrin. On progression, I have the post-monarch study, which is the confirmatory study for the maintained trial that we saw, which is taking patients who have progressed on a CDK4-6 inhibitor and randomizing them to full vestrant versus full vestrant with a CDK4-6 inhibitor. So that's my second line. If you don't have the post-monarch study available to you, you should refer patients to me for it. Or based on the maintaining (laughs) trial, could consider just doing it anyway. You could consider fulvestrant by itself. You could consider fulvestrant plus an mTOR inhibitor, which is what I also consider a reasonable option. We have good data for fulvestrant plus an mTOR inhibitor. After progression on CDK inhibitor twice, 
We certainly could still consider CDK4-6 inhibitor plus mTOR inhibitor, but I have no data for that. PIK3CA mutations are activating, driving mutations. If you have a PIK3CA mutation at some point in your cancer story, you should get apolicid or a clinical trial exploring one of the newer agents. They have a lot of side effects. Oncologists are getting better and better at managing those. Please just schedule a thousand follow-ups the first month you're on that drug to get all of your labs and all of your dose modifications and make sure you're doing well on it and we'll get through it. So that takes us to third line and or fourth line, depending on whether or not you have a PIK3CA mutation, at which point we start considering chemotherapy. Prestizumab deruxtecan, the Destiny Breast 04, was after one line of chemotherapy for patients with metastatic for too low breast cancer. So first, we're going to do some form of chemo. Capecitabine or a taxane are probably our go-to first-line agents. Then if you're her too low, I'm probably looking at trastuzumab deruxtecan. So you will do chemo before trastuzumab? I do have the trial open asking that question. <laughs> asking if trastuzumab deruxtecan should be first line after CDK4-6 inhibitors. So that's also in our arsenal. Okay, so our <laughs> listeners, please listen to that. There is a trial open to do that. Yeah. You know... Victoria, these drugs aren't innocent. Mm -hmm. And because mm -hmm. we know that trastuzumab deruxtecan works in a heavily pretreated HER2 low patient, we can use it in a heavily pretreated HER2 low patient per package insert per study population. I mean, again, the Destiny Breast Force trial was amazing, but it was a relatively small study. I'm a purist. I like to follow the rules. So probably capecitabine or aclitaxel, one of the taxanes, prestizumab deruxtecan. Not arubulin though, right? Because I've heard yeah, that. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. Then we still have arubulin. Arubulin also has overall survival data. Arubulin has overall survival data also in heavily pretreated patients. Very favorable toxicity profiles mm -hmm. of patients who are starting to burn out on a lot of prior therapies. Arubulin tends to go okay for them. So at some point here, I'd add arubulin. At some point here, we also have to talk about sasetuzumab for hormone receptor positive metastatic disease based on the Tropic So2 data. And then we've got a million chemotherapies available. And I think it's just looking at your patient, the toxicities that they have from their prior lines of therapy, their preference, the type of life they live, the job they have, what side effects they absolutely find unacceptable what side effects they would pick if they had to pick one. No one wants to pick any. And you make the best choice for your patient. And now a few final thoughts on this topic. In the past, ESR1 has not been routinely tested in the clinic. It was not actionable after all, but not so any longer. These days it should be done routinely, especially in the post-CDK line of treatment with an increased probability of having an ESR1 mutation by the population. PIK3CA must be routinely screened for, either before or after the first line, because the impact on the status of PIK3CA won't affect the decision nor the efficacy on CDK4-6 inhibitors, but could affect decisions on the second line. So if a patient has a PIK3CA mutation, this patient should be treated with alpelacid, 
plus a different hormonal combination. It could be fulvestrin per the SOLA trial, or it could be letrozole per the believed cohort B trial. As per Dr. Kalinsky, it is not recommended treating unmutated patients with a hormonal therapy alone because median progression pre survival is around two to three months. A solution here would be to offer some new combinations, preferably in a clinical trial. Another option is Everolimus or Affinitor. We should have more options for using these targeted drugs against the big three AKTA mTOR or PTN signaling pathway. Well, it is time to say goodbye to our guests. I promise you that I would not keep you longer than one hour. So the disparities conversation, which is extremely important and needs to be addressed, we'll have to do it some other time. So you just set yourself up for another invitation. That's all I can say. All right. I think this was a fabulous interview. So thank you so much for being here. All right. Bye. Thank you so much. You weren't feeling well, and you're such an amazing trooper. I hope you feel better. Have some chicken soup. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Nice to talk with you. I hope to see you in San Antonio. Yes, absolutely. Take care. Take care, Dr. Hurwitz. Bye. As we mentioned, Kate and I are going to be in San Antonio, and are you planning to be there? Yes, I will be there. All right. So we hope that we run into you accidentally on purpose at some point. And <laughs> that would be great. We would love to see you, and please come back. You were such an incredible guest as I knew you would be. Thank you. I look forward to joining you guys for your 200th episode. Oh, thank you. Yes, absolutely. You're on. You'll have to plan it out. (laughs) Hope you enjoyed this episode and got a lot out of it. If you would like to discuss this episode or any other, please join our closed Facebook group, our NBC Live group. This episode was produced by me, Victoria Goldberg, with the help of Kate Fitzer and Linda Weatherby. Original music and sound design by our associate producer, Connor Kinsley. This episode would not have seen the light of day without assistance from Miranda Gonzalez, Nancy Roelands, and Ashley Fernandez. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of our NBC Live wherever you get your podcast, Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at ourembassylife.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Our NBC Live.